Section 20 of the Bible Under Trial. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Chris Pyle. The Bible Under Trial by James Orr. The Bible and Ethics, God and My Neighbor, Parts 4 and 5. Part 4. With what grace shall I now speak of defending the ethical teaching of Jesus and his religion that is exhibited in the pages of the New Testament? Where shall we look for purity like his which descends into the inmost thoughts of the heart and forbids even the faintest uprisings of unholy passion and desire? Matthew chapter 5, verses 22, 28, etc. Where shall we find the inculcation of every virtue, of everything true, honorable, pure, lovely, of good report. Philippians, chapter 4, verse 8. Earnest repeated continuous as we do in the apostolic writings. What can match the apostle's great hymn on love in 1 Corinthians, chapter 13? How beautiful the cluster he presents of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, and how foul the catalogue of the works of the flesh to which he opposes it. Galatians chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. How comprehensively he argues, Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Romans chapter 12, verse 10. How strenuously he exhorts to the fulfilling of all relative duties. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 and following, and chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 and following, chapter 4, verse 1. How practical is everyday teaching! Let him that stole steal no more. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. If any will not work, neither let him eat. Second Thessalonians Chapter 3, verse 10. Denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we shall live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Titus, chapter 2, verse 12, etc. Alike with Jesus and his apostles, the supreme test of discipleship is the doing of good works, the bringing forth of fruit unto holiness, the dying to sin and living to righteousness. Matthew, chapter 5, verse 16. Chapter 7, verses 21 and following. John, chapter 15, verse 8. Romans, chapter 6, verse 22. Titus, chapter 3, verse 8, etc. The whole end of redemption is that, being redeemed from all iniquity, God's people should be holy. Romans, chapter 6, verse 6. Chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. Galatians, chapter 1, verse 4, Titus, chapter 3, verse 14, 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 14 through 24, etc. How gross a libel on Christianity it is to represent it, as if sometimes done as immoral in character and tendency, must already be evident from the above. Confirmation, however, if that is needed, may be drawn from the mouth of the adversary himself. Mr. Blatchford's book, God and My Neighbor, is in intention an attack on Christianity and the Bible. The impression I have formed in reading it is 
that Mr. Blatchford does not realize how much he himself owes to Christ and his ideals. He vehemently assails Christianity. But on what grounds? Paradoxical as it may seem, chiefly on the ground that Christian society fails to realize the ideals of its professed master. His picture of Christian society as chiefly a collection of shams, hypocrisies, self-indulgences, and vices, is no doubt frightfully overdrawn. But let it pass, and see what he makes of it. Here are a few sentences. As London is, so is England. This is a Christian country. What would Christ think of Park Lane, and the slums, and the hooligans? What would he think of the stock exchange, and the music hall, and the race course? What would he think of our national ideals? Pausing again, over against Exeter Hall, I mentally apostrophize the Christian British people. Ladies and gentlemen, I say, you are Christian in name, but I discern little of Christ in your ideals, your institutions, or your daily lives. You are a mercenary, self-indulgent, frivolous, boastful, blood-guilty mob of heathen. If to praise Christ in words and deny him in deeds be Christianity, then London is a Christian city, and England is a Christian nation. For it is very evident that our common English ideals are anti-Christian, and that our commercial, foreign, and social affairs are run on anti-Christian lines. From the preface. Once more. Is Christianity the rule of life in America and Europe? Are the masses of people who accept it peaceful, virtuous, chaste, spiritually minded, prosperous, happy? Are their national laws based on its ethics? Are their international politics guided by the Sermon on the Mount? From Glasgow to Johannesburg, from Bombay to San Francisco, is God or Memon king? Page 166 of the popular edition. What now does all this mean, I would ask, if not that the sin of Christendom is that it is not obeying the precepts of Christ, its master, who is still held up as to be obeyed. It is his teaching, his ethics, his religion, which yield the standard by which the Christian peoples are judged and condemned. They ought to be living in accordance with Christ's teaching, but are not. If they did, it is implied, they would be peaceful, virtuous, chaste, spiritually minded, prosperous, happy. Were there ever so strange an indictment against a religion before? If to praise Christ in words and deny him in deeds is Christianity, then London is a Christian city, etc. But who will endorse this as a definition of Christianity? And if Christianity is not this, but the opposite of this, what do we come to but that it is the purest and best religion the world has yet seen? Christ is today the conscience of humanity. He is the touchstone, even for Mr. Blatchford, of what is good and evil. The same fallacy runs through the whole of the singular book. On a later page, page 197, we have drawn out the qualities of a really humane and civilized nation. In such a nation there should be no such thing as poverty, as ignorance, as crime, as idleness, as war, as slavery, as hate, as envy, as pride, as greed, as gluttony, as vice. But the author says this is not a humane and civilized nation. And never will it be while it accepts Christianity as its religion. He adds, these are my reasons for opposing Christianity. But who, with the least sense of fairness, does not see that the things he contends for are the very things which Christianity is constantly inculcating? These are Christian virtues. In the Christian ideal of the kingdom of God, every one of the things here contended for is embraced. Nay, in opposing Christianity, Mr. Blatchford is opposing the only agency that can produce them. Mr. Blatchford's reply to all this is that, however beautiful Christianity 
ethically, may be in theory, it is a failure in practice. It is therefore not divine, page 166. As will be seen later, it is far from true that Christianity is a failure in the sense intended, but one thing perfectly clear is that where Christianity fails, Mr. Blatchford's scheme, if scheme it can be called, will not succeed. In the nature of things it cannot. Christianity holds up lofty ideals, but it does not stop there. It nourishes the sense of obligation and responsibility and furnishes motives and aids adequate to produce the results it aims at. It is the power of God unto salvation. Romans chapter 1 verse 16. Mr. Blatchford has nothing of the kind to offer. On the contrary, he destroys the very possibility of the realization of his own ideals by his audacious denial of human freedom and accountability. Man, he glories to teach, is not a free agent but a machine. He is what heredity and circumstances have made him. He is not to blame for his wrongdoing. He cannot sin against God. I will not discuss this theory, uncompromisingly expounded in his chapter on determinism. I only point out the folly of seeking an ethical millennium along lines that do away with ethical conduct altogether. It is indeed a singular confusion when men oppose the service of God to the service of humanity, when God and my neighbor becomes God or my neighbor, which is pretty much Mr. Blatchford's point of view. What reader of the Bible does not know that the service of God includes service of my neighbor? In law, prophets, psalms, proverbs, gospels, epistles, love of the neighbor is never left out. What is made the chief part of practical religion is not this the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke. Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, and to bring the poor that are cast out to thy house, etc.? Isaiah chapter 58 verses 6 and 7. Whoso hath the world's goods, and beholdeth his brother in need, and shutteth up his compassion from him, how doth the love of God abide in him? 1 John chapter 3, verse 17 Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. James chapter 1, verse 27 Cross-reference Chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. Jesus supremely inculcates love of the neighbor. Who can forget the parable of the Good Samaritan? Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. Even of the enemy. Matthew, chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. Cross-reference Romans, chapter 12, verse 20. Only where secular ethics would fain divorce these two things and make love of the neighbor independent of religion the Bible connects them and pours into the earthly duty the whole force of the higher motive. Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 to 40. Separated from its true fountain in the love of God, the love of humanity dries up and dies. History is the proof of the intimate relation of the two, as will afterwards be shown. Part 5. The morality of Christianity has been assailed on various other grounds. The charge, e.g., has sometimes been brought against it that, while praiseworthy up to a certain point, the ideals of Jesus are narrow and limited in their outlook. F.D. Strauss may be the mouthpiece here. In the closing paragraphs of his New Life of Jesus, 1864, he says the life of man in the family retreats into the background with his teacher, who himself was without a family. 
His relationship towards the state was a purely passive one. He is averse to acquisition of property not merely for himself, because of his calling, but he is also visibly disinclined to it. And all that concerns art and the beautiful enjoyment of life remains completely outside of his circle of vision. Footnote. Similar objections are urged by Mr. J. S. Mill in his Essay on Liberty, and latterly by Mazzini, Essays, Volume 5, page 363. See remarks on these writers by Rev. D. S. Cairns, Master of Arts, in his volume, Christianity in the Modern World, Chapter 4. End of footnote. One thing true in this objection is that, in his intensely compressed public life, Jesus did not concern himself in his teaching with education, art, politics, science, trade, and a thousand other human interests in themselves most legitimate. He had infinitely greater things to occupy his mind, an infinitely greater work to do, infinitely greater truths to teach a world lost to the knowledge of God and the way of eternal life, in comparison with the work the Father had given him to do, the redemption of the world, the founding of the kingdom of God, the imparting of spiritual and eternal blessings, the restoring of lost men to the love and fellowship of their heavenly Father, all merely secular interests paled into insignificance. Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you, was his reproof to one who wished him to interfere in a question of inheritance. Luke chapter 12, verse 14. His life was full of sacrifice, and he knew that a cross awaited him at the end. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how I am straightened till it be accomplished. Luke chapter 12, verse 50. What sort of mind is it that can combine the thought of Jesus, these momentous interests weighing hourly on his spirit, with the idea of his giving little parlor or lecture hall discourses on poetry, painting, music, political economy, the best methods of education, or, say, of agriculture? The idea is preposterous. Yet it would be a totally false inference from these facts to assume that Jesus himself meant to belittle the importance of such matters in their own place, or that his religion is hostile to their cultivation or development. The very opposite is the case. One might ask, indeed, what kind of government was there in Christ's time, what sort of education, what forms of art, what species of science, of which one such as he could be expected to approve. Jesus came assuredly to make all things new in these as in every other department of life, to reconstitute society from top to bottom on new basis. His religion, e.g., strikes in its fundamental ideas at slavery, but he did not, therefore, begin a political crusade against slavery as existing in his time. Christ's teachings embody deep, enduring principles, set forth grand master truths, occupy themselves with the eternal, not with that which is simply temporal. It is this which gives Christ's words weight. Each age, as it comes round, finds them fruitful in applications to itself. Jesus commits himself to no one side in party politics, to no one denomination or party in the church, to no one form of church government or action exclusively, to no one mode of social organization, to no one solution of the questions of capital and labor, of rulers and subjects, of rich and poor. The reason is that the solution of these questions, proper to one age or stage, of society might not be the solution proper to another. And Jesus is not the teacher of one age only, else his words, like those of all other teachers, would become obsolete, but the teacher of all times and all ages. 
Hence his words never grow old, never are left behind in the world's progress. Footnote. This was one of the things which most powerfully impressed the late Professor Romains. It becomes most remarkable, he says, that in literal truth there is no reason why any of his words should ever pass away in the sense of becoming obsolete. Thoughts on Religion, pages 157 to 158. End of footnote. Yet no one reading the Gospels would conclude that because of this Jesus was indifferent to the beauty of God's world, to human life and its relationships, to the necessity of civil government, to trade, industry, or any of the ordinary occupations of life. As I have written in another connection, the world to him is God's world, not the devil's. He has the deepest feeling for its beauty, its sacredness, the interest of God in the humblest of its creatures. His parables are drawn from its laws. He recognizes that its institutions are the expressions of a divine order. The world of nature and society, therefore, in all the wealth and fullness of their relations, are always the background of his picture. We see this in his parables, which have nothing narrow and ascetic about them, but mirror the life of humanity in its amplest breadth. The sower, shepherd, merchant, handicraftsman, the servants with their talents, and proving faithful and unfaithful in the use of them, the builder, the vineyard-keeper, weddings, royal feasts, etc. Footnote. Christian View of God, page 357. End of footnote. Strange, truly, that any should think Jesus is indifferent to beauty in nature who remember his words on the lilies of the field. Matthew, chapter 7, verses 28 and 29 or indifferent to beauty of thought, or word, or act, who recall his appreciation of Mary's deed in breaking the costly alabaster box of Spikenard. Matthew, chapter 26, verses 6-13. Or indifferent to the family, who think of him as one to whom marriage was a divine institution to be jealously guarded, and who consecrated it by his presence and blessing. Matthew, chapter 19, verses 3-9. through John, Chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. To whom human paternity was an image of the divine fatherhood. Matthew, chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. And who took the little children in his arms and blessed them. Matthew, chapter 19, verses 13 through 15. Or indifferent to civil government, who considered that he inculcated and exemplified in practice the duty of submission to lawful authority. Matthew, chapter 22, verses 19 through 21. Jesus had a higher ideal than national patriotism, even that of a universal kingdom of God. Yet he, like Paul, had the deepest love for his own nation and wept at the thought of its coming inevitable woes. Matthew, chapter 23, verse 37. Luke, chapter 19, verses 41 and 42. Christ's morality, in brief, is not antisocial, and his religion has proved to be in history a constant source of inspiration to social and moral progress, to art, education, science, reforms, refinement of life, civil order, the elevation and purification of political ideas. The proof of this must be reserved for another paper, but it follows from the very nature of the religion. Christ's disciples are not to withdraw from the world, but are to live in it, and to be its salt and light. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. Out of this life in the world, in obedience to Christ's ideals, will spring a new type of marriage relation, of family life, of relations between masters and servants, of social life generally. 
It cannot be otherwise if Christ's kingdom is to be the secretly transforming influence. He says it will be. Affection, intelligence, love of all things, pure and beautiful, will be quickened. Knowledge of nature will be sanctified, and science be pursued in a devout and reverent spirit. Order and industry, under righteous government, in society, will lead to prosperity. The love of knowledge has ever attended the spread of true religion. Strange as it may sound to many, the great discoverers in science have mostly been religious men. Footnote. See the striking evidence of this in E. Naville's Modern Physics. On the influence of Christianity on art, there is an interesting supplementary chapter in Bruce's Gesta Christi, 2nd edition. End of footnote. End of section 20.